0: If you're not in the right lane, it doesn't matter like where the road is going. If you're not going the right place for your energy and, and what you want to pursue, then it's just a mismatch fundamentally and, and never the foundation for good advice.
1: Hey, Jessica, how's it
2: going? It's been a
1: while since we've spoken.
2: It has been a while. It has been a while. Things are going well. You are in India at the moment and about to head off to Senegal.
1: Yes, Tell new us about country, that. new continent. I'm so excited. Yeah, I've been in India for a couple of weeks, uh, leading a recruitment trip, and I'm off to Senegal to join a consortium of SEC University sios i mean talk about acronyms we're gonna spend three days visiting with um, some high schools in uh, dakar and also i believe we're being hosted for a reception by the u.s ambassador to senegal
2: Ooh, wow that's really cool and exciting
1: yes it is and how was canada
2: canada was good it was a very quick trip flew in on a Tuesday, left by Saturday, but um, it was the Pi Live North America. And if anybody who's listening to the podcast um, heard the episode from last week, that was live or semi-live from the Pi Live North America event, where I chatted with a few of the delegates who were attending. And uh, yeah, it was a really good event and so fun to connect in person again.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. And I did listen to it, so I'm glad you had a chance to speak with a few of them. And who do we have today?
2: Today, we're speaking with Ryan Fleming, who's the Partnerships Director at AECC. And Ryan and I met a number of years ago when I was at Study Texas. And I was reminded of that uh, last week, actually, at the by Live North America when I was chatting with him. So we're excited to welcome Ryan to the podcast today.
1: Yep, I'm looking forward to hearing what he's got to say.
2: Welcome back to Destiny Vendors. Today, we're excited to present as our guest, Ryan Fleming, the Director of Partnerships for USA at AECC. Ryan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Jessica, and thank you, Girish. I'm so humbled and excited to be on the show. I've been an early fan of the show. I can actually still remember where I was driving when I was listening to your inaugural episode and just getting goosebumps, you know, with the the power and the sincerity of the stories. And ever since then, I've been really excited to follow you guys. And it's an honor to be on with you.
2: Awesome. Thank well, you so much for that. Well, that's
0: wonderful to be here, Ryan. Yeah.
1: Thank you, man. It's good to have you. I know you've been traveling a little bit, uh, but I know you're also in a new role. So let's get started talk to us about how you got into international education. I mean you've heard the show, this is where we want to get started. Let's hear your story.
0: Sure. Yeah, thanks Girish. Well, it's kind of an origin story with very inauspicious and humble beginnings. So, I'm from Buffalo, New York, but more specifically, kind of a rural no man's land in between Buffalo and Rochester. So, when I say Buffalo, people think like the big city or somewhere nearby. It's actually kind of the opposite setting of that. I grew up in a town of probably 2,000 people. There were 73 people in my graduating class at high school, characterized by a lot of family farms. My grandparents were farmers and just kind of a quintessential small town insulated life in rural America, if that makes sense. And maybe not the origin story that you would expect for someone who is in our line of work that's kind of inherently about exchange and mobility and comings and goings that's not really the flavor of you know my hometown i would have to say the the little spark in my childhood really traced back to my mom so my mom studied spanish in undergrad and she was the first person as far as i know in my family to attain a bachelor's degree and just growing up i always had that interest where she would just mention from time to time, she worked with social security administration in a government role in a bilingual capacity using Spanish. And I just remember being a kid and thinking, wow, so like you can communicate in a different language and say these things that to my ear mean nothing, but it it was like a key into this whole world or series of worlds that just catching a glimpse of, I thought was really fascinating and was really juxtaposed against kind of the day-to-day of small town life And so I think that if there was a seed that kind of was planted in me of a bigger world that was out there, or maybe a life of this exploration and pushing back some kind of frontier, you know, that was really it. And I bring that story up because I followed pretty literally in my mom's footsteps. So she was a Spanish major at the University of Buffalo, which is now very much a research focused institution and maybe kind of a counterintuitive choice. I'll, I'll give you that. But I actually pursued the same track. Um, just kind of following my interest and passion. I took up Spanish when it was available to me in school. And just from there, it kind of set me on this path of you know, international interest and learning languages and you know, just something that I was really passionate and interested in. I ended up studying abroad in Barcelona. So had a short stint as an international student myself, which was just supremely rewarding and enriching, opening up different perspectives and ways of life, a, a really life-changing experience. It's cliche to say, but no less true uh, for being so. And so I think professionally, it was an easy pivot or really just a continuation of my interests and just something that was introduced to me from a very young age.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no real origin story. That's one kind of story. I mean, we've seen so many guests and everybody comes at it from a different way. Um, But so tell me this. So you went to college to major in Spanish. What were you thinking you were going to do with it?
0: Well, that, (laughs) that question had been posed to me in so many words by, you know, a few people, because of course, there's a very vocational bent to a lot of advice that you receive, even more so now, I think, people have become more sophisticated in terms of career outcomes than they were during my time which was circa 2006 or so and i just have always resisted the notion that you have to know exactly where things land in order to pursue them you know the the cliche of following your dreams is maybe a bit simplistic but i think if you follow where your energies naturally lead you there are many great career paths out there but if it's not the right career for you in that it's getting you out of bed every morning. It's a great career, but you know, I'm not going to be great at it. So I always kind of approached it more of hedging a little bit against your own knowledge. You know, we don't know what we don't know and I think you can't see all ends in terms of what the possibilities would be from a professional sense if you pursue Spanish for example, which, you know, some of the career suggestions were like, "Oh, are you going to become an interpreter?" You know, it's, it's very limited in terms of what someone if I put to you, like someone studies in Spanish and what can they now go and do uh, teach English in Mexico, maybe, you know, be a teacher in a school. And I have a lot of t- teacher colleagues and friends who are in my program, which is well and good. And that's right for them. I wasn't really a teacher kind of person. And so I just thought, well, let's just do it at that time. You know, continuing on into grad school, I think I also had the benefit of knowing that this wasn't the end of the road for me academically, I could use that as a foundation. And I really considered it as kind of an international dimension of my academics. Having gone to Spain, that just really opened me up to like, okay, well, whatever I do now, I wanted to have that international component. And that felt like vectors that were actually broadening my choices rather than pigeonholing me into saying, well, hope you enjoy conjugating verbs in eighth grade Spanish for the next 40 years. That just was never really going to work for me.
2: So what did you go on to study in graduate school? I mean, that's my natural question. I totally understand what you're saying though about the undergraduate because I did a bachelor's degree in art history <laughs> and it's because of, I loved it, yeah. I loved so it. But I've right. done absolutely nothing in art history. <laughs> yeah, then, well, so. maybe it's
0: enriched you in ways that maybe don't translate to your current line of work. But I think yes. there's there's such a like reductionist streak now in that we're viewing higher education as, Vocational prep school, yeah. instead of how to build a holistic, well-rounded person with broad horizons. That's considering the impact of what they do. And anyway, yeah, but I agree yeah,
1: with I, you. I, yeah, I agree with you 100. I mean, I know just asked you a question about grad school, but I just want to reiterate what you just said. Right? I mean, I just spent the last two weeks traveling around India talking to students about their future, and this whole idea of following your energy. I'm gonna steal that for my next gig
0: when I speak to students, so thank you you for that. Absolutely. Well, and there'd be fairs in India, you know, later on in my career where students would come up and they'd say, like, what should I study? And I didn't, I like, don't even understand the premise of the questions. It's like, well, first of all, we just met, so I really have no idea. If you're asking what some (laughs) of the prevailing career things going on are now, you know, we could explore that together, but really the substance of the advice is impossible to give without knowing that, crucial for you you know for you what is it and so we it was a kickoff point to really ask more questions back to them and hopefully prompt some introspection around that but yeah certainly if if you're not in the right lane it doesn't matter like where the road is going if you're not going the right place for your energy and and what you want to pursue then it's just a mismatch fundamentally and, and never the foundation for good advice pivoting back Jessica you asked about grad school so i did end up doing a terminal master's program at the Pennsylvania State University, colloquially Penn State. Uh, It's an international affairs master's degree, and it was interdisciplinary housed within the law school. Originally, I wanted to go to law school, but that was, again, really on the basis of people saying, hey, you know, you would be a good lawyer. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. So I was like accepted and ready to go. Uh, William and Mary down in Virginia, that was the plan. And then I just, I won't call it cold feet because it wasn't a lack of commitment. It was more deep thought about, is this really what I want to do? Not because someone else said I'd be good at it, but because it really follows what I'm passionate about and interested in. And I knew from the study abroad experience that I wanted to do something related to that. I didn't really know how it translated to Getting paid periodically to do something on a professional level, but I didn't let that stop me. I just kind of said, well, I'll do international affairs and it was part law coursework. It was part international relations. So there were a lot of students who were going on to Washington careers with think tanks or NGOs or in the federal government state department, et cetera. There were some people that were more on like a science side. So they were studying sustainable development and, you know, kicking around a soccer ball to generate electricity and stuff like that, which I totally appreciate. Can't really bring much to that conversation, but I wish them well. And then there was me and I kind of carved out a tack in an education front. Uh, there was an international education course that I took as part of the program, we had to do an internship component, which was required. There was a connection with my career services counselor over to the International Student Services Office on campus. And they said, you know, I think you'd be good to actually go over and talk to Masamea Asaf in the Global Affairs Office there and see if they could use you over in like the immigration advising. Because I'd mentioned to my career services counselor, like I studied abroad. I actually had a roommate who also was studying abroad in France at the time, but he kind of complicated his paperwork. He didn't make the right copies, just really simple mistakes, and was able to kind of work with him just as, you know, on a friendly basis to get his paperwork in order. And he was able to go, albeit a year later, had a great time. And that kind of set him up on his course of life. And so I thought, boy, that was really enriching just to help the sense of helping someone else. And in a small way, to equip them to have an experience that was hopefully powerful, the way that mine was, uh, in in their own way. So, in a career counseling sense, I was like, you know, I think I want to do study abroad advising. That's really that's a that's a job that I think will actually fit what I've been doing so far. And the advice that I got was like, yeah. So a lot of people want to do that, and it's pretty in demand. And remember, at at this time, we're talking like financial crisis. It's two thousand ten the bottom just fell out of the global economy like a year ago. And so the advice at that time was you should prepare to spend nine to 12 months looking for a job full-time after you graduate. And I was like, whoa, like for a master's degree, this was not the bargain that I entered into, you know, on, on principle a couple of years earlier. So I thought, okay, I better get aggressive here. So I got into this internship and the advice was, rather than do study abroad, which is American students outbound from my perspective, why don't you do it the other way around where you are in an immigration advising capacity for inbound students because there are tons of students from all over the world coming to study here. And there's this apparatus that maintains and supports them. And, you know, if you can really get into that, people are terrified of the immigration regulations. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever received was find. The Venn diagram of something that you like to do, or at least don't mind doing, and that everyone else is terrified of doing, and own it, and it will fast track you to somewhere good. Hopefully, if you pursue it well enough. So I did that. I thought, oh, immigration—that could be kind of cool. Did some projects for Penn State, and then parlayed that into a professional opportunity at Kent State in Ohio, working for Dr. David D. Maria. I'm sure you've met a time or two. Uh, he hired me out of grad school, and I was getting my start professionally in a student services capacity at a public research university in Ohio, helping students, which was just a tremendous experience and really remains kind of my professional heritage in the sense of how i got into this work in the first place oh that's awesome so your venn diagram
1: i'm, I'm picturing guy, but your own version of it yeah right? sure so, yeah there's a few yeah, more pieces yeah.
0: right but yeah just a simpler <laughs> version of that like run towards the thing everyone else is running away from and you'll find that it'll be yours for the take yeah. if you want it that's brilliant! Yeah. i should be taking
1: notes i think <laughs> all of these things yeah good, stuff. good I'm, stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it back in the back of my head so So you you get started at Kent State, and then what has happened in your career? I mean, I know you recently at IDP, now you're at AECC. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly kind of walk us through that?
0: Yeah, so in brief, I spent about four years in a student services capacity, and again, I think as before you don't know what you don't know. So for a young person in their 20s starting off, what do you know to ask for? If you want to do international education, you don't know that there's this whole ecosystem of third-party organizations specializing in different aspects and pillars of this line of work. What you know is, well, there are colleges and universities. I just spent many, many years in one as a student. Okay, well, maybe I'll just stay. There's a sense of inertia, like maybe I'll just stay and I'll just, I'll get a name badge now and I'll come have a desk instead of a student desk, right? And hopefully less homework. So I started in this office, an office of global education at Kent State. And my aspirations at that time were to get experience in the sense of working directly with students. And then maybe what do you do after two or four years of that? You maybe move to an assistant director role. There were some parallels. You can't really segue into education abroad because those are just, it's like they're just going in different directions in a way. You both know this, but there were some other nascent areas like international partnerships that were just getting started at that time. And I thought, well, let's well, dream big. Maybe if I don't just take my boss's role someday, maybe there'll be some other kind of adjacent role that is still close enough to what I know how to do that would be a good career path. And so that was my thinking. You know, International Student and Scholar Services is very much the unloved puppy in the litter, I think. It's the only, apart from the immigration scary stuff, you know, it's the only line of work that doesn't regularly travel. Uh, We had sites in Florence, Italy through Kent State. The education abroad advisors were going over there twice a year. And I was like, man, that must be nice. Meanwhile, we had international admissions that was carrying out our recruitment function. And through pure chance, and this is just totally chance and credit to David De Maria for hooking me up a little bit. So a crazy shout, David. Um, we had a, an employment situation at the university where we were having temps in the admissions office. There was some turnover. And legally, you couldn't have temps go and do recruitment travel internationally for the university for obvious risk and legal problems that would create So they turned to each of me and my colleagues at the time. We had three trips. There was India with IDP. There was Saudi Arabia, uh, the fair in April. And then there was a China trip. And one of my colleagues had spent time in China. So it's like, okay, Jordan, you're going to go to China. Jonathan, you're going to go to Saudi Arabia. Ryan, you're going to go to India for two weeks with these IDP people. So I had no idea, like up from down, who are these people? No clue. Somehow they still sent me. So I was off on the road. And that was even, you know, as a corollary to the study abroad experience, much more condensed from a time perspective, but no less impactful in its own way, you know, generating instilling a love of India and making some friends there, but then also just seeing like, oh, so this is a company that like puts all this on and is essentially privatized guidance counseling, serving the function where it's not embedded in schools the way that I certainly had the benefit of growing up. I just kind of kept in touch with that team. IDP had a small US-based team at the time that I kept up with. And when I finally felt like I was hitting a wall In the university environment just in terms of advancement and we touched on this jessica in our panel the other week that universities are not necessarily the most nimble meritocratic organizations out there so for a 20 something that's trying to advance and make moves it's just not not always the best option if there are alternatives so i slowly became aware of those and i ended up just reaching out one day saying hey if you guys are ever looking for someone you know let me know and they said you know it's funny it's funny you reach out because we've just expanded our team. We're about to close the interview process, but if you'd like to come in, uh, we'd love to have you just chat further. And long story short, I just wrapped up a seven-year stint with IDP in kind of progressive capacity working with U.S. colleges and universities.
2: I'm going to to ask you a question that we we ask all of our podcast guests. Um, And you have mentioned a couple of names in your explanation of where you got to where you are today. But the title of the podcast, as you know, is Destiny Benders. And so we always like to hear from our guests, who bent your destiny? You mentioned a, a few people. Can you expand on that a little bit? You know, thinking back throughout that career, who put you on the path or changed your path to where you are and and bent your destiny along the way.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think I've probably mentioned the two people that would fit this bill. The first in brief would be my mom just because she gave me that seed of interest and she showed me just enough saying like, "Yeah, you know, if I really spend a lot of time speaking Spanish, I actually dream in Spanish." I thought that was the craziest story I'd ever heard as a kid, like you dream in Spanish. Even that little idea, like it's just a child's understanding, but it really propels you forward to find kind of the next waypoint on your journey. More recently, and in a professional sense, it has to be David De Maria. As I mentioned, I was under this pressure to find a job, which meant I started my search early. I thought, there's no way I'm searching for a job for nine months. That's just not happening. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start searching for a job before I graduate, and hopefully I'll split the difference somewhere or not be in the wilderness for too, too long. The, the advice was prescient about chasing the immigration opportunity because actually I was able to find something before graduating. But the problem that was created then was that I actually wasn't done with my school yet. So I had class in Pennsylvania, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And now Kent State was offering me this role that was 40 hours a week, and you really can't bend the rules. And that was how it was listed. And for issues of fairness and whatever, like they need their 40 hours. David was the one who accepted my compromise proposal that what if I just worked 10 hour days on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday? And then I'll drive in the night and I'll do class Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in Pennsylvania. And then I'll drive back to Ohio. It's about four hours each way. And then I'll work 10 hour days and we'll do that until the semester is over. This was October at the time. And that was kind of a, it was a little bit of a janky suggestion. I could totally see now how someone would be like, yeah, like if you're not available now, that's just not going to work. Or, you know, inherently Ryan, this is an advising function. So I'm not sure what the value of having you here for 10 hours on a Sunday would be, you know, thanks, but no thanks. That would have made complete sense. And I really credit and I'm grateful to David for having the foresight. He was also working on his PhD or his EDD at the time. Uh, So he just, was putting in 10-hour days himself just to try and get the dissertation done. And it was a nice overlapping of opportunity where he very graciously said, you know, fine, let's have you come in. You're going to build some forms for us. You're going to digitize our forms and we'll do some special projects until you're properly up and running. So without that, I don't really know what would have happened to me. Um, Kent State was not the first job I had applied to. There were others that just didn't go anywhere and Certainly I would have never met, you know, the recruitment folks that I had run into in my Kent State role. So if I had to trace it back to like one turn off, I would say that was the one inflection point that really brought me to be here chatting with you today.
1: Wow. I mean, you know, again, a couple of things to take away from this, right? One is just pure hustle. You gotta hustle, right? I mean, to think of maybe doing Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 10 hours. I mean, you gotta get creative and you have to hustle. So that's that's one thing that I'm taking away from this. But, you know, the other thing is you, you said, why wait till I finish my master's to do a job search? And that's another great piece of advice. Like you don't start after you graduate. Well, While we're in the program, especially in a master's professional program, you're networking all the time. And that's when you should be building those networks. So hats off to you, buddy, for doing that. Uh, Clearly it shows, right? I mean, you've (laughs) grown in your career and uh, I'm sure it's a lot of it because of that hustle. But I want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, You said you were on a panel. I'm assuming this is at the Pi Live in Toronto. Uh, I wasn't there. So you said something about the universities are not as meritocratic as they should be in terms of careers and whatnot. So can you maybe shed some light on what you're talking about and what would universities do differently or what should they be doing differently?
0: I'm sure people can relate to this dynamic from a variety of workplaces, but I found elements of the university life to be almost like an episode of Game of Thrones with the different competing fiefdoms and and uh, power battles. We had a centralized office. So I think that was efficient from a process standpoint and certainly from a workflow standpoint to have everyone under one roof was beneficial. Uh, Sometimes that creates adjacent people with different priorities. And sometimes you felt like you weren't really sure what game you were playing. I think you come in a little bit idealistic in your 20s thinking that, well, if I really distinguish myself and I do X and Y project, and I put in the time of a couple of years, three years, not that it's owed to you. I think this is something that people kind of saddle millennials with that's a little bit inaccurate. It's not that it's owed to you, but it's that you you expect reciprocity from the system. If I come and hustle hard, as you said, and put in the time and really innovate different things, there will be a playing field that I can engage with predictably, that will have opportunity that I can compete fairly for. But what I found is that, you know, in going for a certain role, that role, it's not like a chair where people sit in it for a while and then they move on to a different chair. And then you say, OK, well, I think maybe I'll try to go sit in that chair. The chair is gone. They take the chair with them when they go or they restructure it or there's not a chair anymore. You know, so it's just it becomes a very frustrating game to play trying to figure out how you can advance i love talking to students it's my passion i it's the most rewarding thing that i've done professionally to help students conversely if i had to explain curricular practical training one more time i think i would have you know jumped out of my window which unfortunately was only a one story building so it wouldn't really done much but um i just couldn't do it like I, there comes a point where it's like all right we need to pivot and do something else let's Let's build systems that enable more students to come and ask about CPT, but they need to ask somebody else when they do. That's kind of where my mindset was. I just think that the environment that I expected going in was not the one I experienced. And it's a function of decentralization. Part of what may be contributing to the great resignation that we were discussing on the panel is this: the way that it's organized doesn't necessarily prioritize international components of University life. And so people are under resourced. They're being asked to do this much, but the resourcing is quite low. Uh, that can really burn people out. And it's just a pervasive challenge. I don't know. I don't know that I can now parlay my answer into something prescriptive for universities to do. I think one of the conclusions we reached on the panel was just really listen to your employees, understand what motivates them. Sometimes we go in as leaders or managers and we just kind of assume this is what the young people want, or this is what my team wants. And actually, we need to take the time to understand what motivates each person and be responsive to that, because that's part of the employee-employer relationship. It's a two-way street, and it involves us also listening and thinking through how we might incentivize the person in front of us who's on our team, which improves retention and can kind of dampen the effects of the movement that we've seen in the sector and more broadly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to, you talk about motivation and you talked about your passion uh, was talking to students. I want to ask you, you've been in international education now for a number of years. You're continuing on in this field with your career. What motivates you? What do you love aside from talking to students, which we kind of talked a little bit about, but what, what do you love about international education? What keeps you in this field? What keeps you motivated? every day to keep going.
0: Yeah, well I I have to give a shout out to my current employer ACC. I think that I've found them to be an ethical player in the field, which is so important because with that student commitment, you need to know that the work you're doing is not commodifying students or treating them like a pipeline. You know, a pipeline is for oil or other commodities. It's not for students, right? So I think working in an environment with people who understand that deeply from the top down and instill that culture really motivates me. More abstractly, I think I've found international education is actually not a small or niche line of work at all. It's the opposite. It's about, I'm going to steal actually something from what David DeMaria was sharing in his session at the Pi Live North America a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about In his role at UMBC in Maryland, it's not about pushing a narrow agenda for this international stuff and dragging everybody else along. It's about equipping the university in all of its functions to deepen what it does by adding an international component to it. And so actually, in a way, it's the broadest of all fields. It's about expanding the horizon of your personal outlook in life, your experiences, but then also what the university does in society, the function that it serves to the degree that it has an international component. I think everyone is better served by that. And it's actually quite a broad mandate. So I think that's the paradox. You go in thinking, well, you know, at at the next barbecue, how do I succinctly explain what it is that I do? Lately, I say I'm just in student recruitment or I'm in education and just let them dig deeper. But I think, you find that it's actually quite a broad field with a lot of opportunity and different facets that you couldn't have even dreamed of. And that's really exciting to me. I mean, I'll be 35 in two weeks and I've still got a long runway, hopefully, ahead of me professionally. And I don't feel at all like I'm at the end of anything or like driving down towards the pointy end of something. It's it's even opening up further and further, you know, 10, 10 years on now. So I find that really exciting. Well, happy early birthday. Thanks, Girish. I appreciate that. Scorpio yeah. season,
1: baby. You know, <laughs> is that? I don't know there was a Scorpio season. Oh, yeah. Open season on Scorpio. Yeah, it's I'll send like you some it. material. Uh, yeah, no worries. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, so... You, you brought it up, so I have to ask you. You you, you refer to the commoditizing of student recruitment and students mm-hmm. being turned into commodities. It's happening everywhere, and I, I believe when you were a guy, when you guys were still in Canada, there was a, a, a documentary or a TV show that came out that talked about some of that. Share some thoughts, please.
0: Yeah, I'd heard about that. Um, And I'll I'll defer to the experts on that one because I have to confess I did not see the documentary, but it's out there if you're interested. Sometimes when you have people from the outside looking in, even an innocuous pattern of a sector or a particular line of work can seem untoward or suspicious somehow. So I would just say maybe go in with a grain of salt about what you see, not excusing what, you know, bad practice might be. On display there. It's actually interesting in the context of COVID because there's been this advent of technology in the sense that once we were all trapped at home, there was a real commercial opportunity for companies to go into digital recruitment, to build the next platform, change the way we recruit, and all this stuff. People say very similar things. One of the patterns that I've been paying attention to is like technology for what purpose? Technology doesn't necessarily equal innovation. Innovate, like what makes something innovative? It's actually the application of something, in this case, technology, toward a certain end that is desirable. So it's not actually innovative to just say, we're using the latest technology. The innovation comes, how can we use that technology to connect real people? Consistently, there have been different data sets that have come out surveying students during and after the pandemic that really showed pretty tepid interest in just doing all online study. I think from the perspective of growing the tent, if there was a student that was never going to get on the plane, but maybe now there's additional online coursework for that student, I think that's great. And that is innovation, in my opinion. But we should be really careful not to be seduced by the latest and greatest technology that sacrifices people and real relationships in pursuit of scale. And I think the temptation, the capitalist temptation to scale is really driving a lot of change in the market right now. And that is what erodes the ethics at the core. You can be ethical when you you need to know with whom you're working. That's a really simple example of an ethical tenant. Like With whom are you working? Once you start to introduce layers of separation through technology and call it innovation, you know, I'm kind of out at that point personally. So I think that that's something that certainly in institutions should pay attention to. I'm not coming in as a Luddite saying all tech is bad and we need to just go stand on the street corner of Mumbai with some pamphlets and do it all like super old fashioned way. There's innovation that you can take advantage of, but you need to make sure that you really police the borders of doing it ethically because those could easily be washed away if you're not careful.
2: So I'm keeping an eye on time. And as we always do in our podcast, we tend to end it with our quick fire questions. And Ryan, being a listener of the podcast, you will know all about our quick fire questions. Sometimes they are quick and sometimes they are not.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll I'll do my best. Yeah, but go ahead.
2: (laughs) So we'll go ahead and start. Um, I'll, I'll shoot a question at you. So you've traveled a bit. What do you do in your downtime? What's your hobbies? What does Ryan on the weekend like to go to just decompress and get your mind off of work? Great
0: question. Um, I have three kids. So that really does eat the preponderance of my free time, if it can so be called. So I have two sons, they're 11 and nine, and I have a two-year-old daughter. So as you can imagine, um, they each have their own pursuits, maybe Scarlett less so, but Uh, My sons are in music, they're in sports, and I really take time to try and invest in that and be present for those however possible, uh, which takes a lot of my time. I know the non-parents out there will not be able to relate to this. So what do I actually like to do? Uh, I like to read. I'm a pretty avid reader. I go in spurts, so I'll just consume three or four books at a go and then take a few months off. I played tennis in high school, so I'm a fan of tennis. I follow organized sports. So I'm a little bit slight to go out there and play American football. I think I'd get annihilated on the first play, but I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. We were chatting before the pod started up. Uh, Go Bills. This is our year. Hopefully just, I keep up, you know, we have a good social network here in Buffalo. A lot of my family and friends are from this area, which kind of informed us relocating back here ultimately is our social center of gravity.
1: But, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that you're a reader because that was going to be my uh, quickfire question to say, you sound like a well-read man. Um, If you were to recommend two books, one that's more field-related or business-related and one that's just your favorite book that you like to read, something that motivates you or ignites you, whatever.
0: Oh, that's a good one. Field-related, I would probably suggest Platform Revolution. This was a recommendation that was given to me by Mr. Joe Morrison, who is the founder of Concourse, recently acquired Concourse. They're doing big things over there. Check them out. Shout out to Joe. Um, that was just all about Joe without speaking for him. he's a, He was building financial trading platforms on Wall Street and just kind of loosely got interested in international ed, saw some of the inefficiencies. Uh, we've chatted about that here and there, and he recommended this book that was all about the creation of platforms, how do you strengthen them? What are some of the off-ramps that can make them inefficient? And so I think for anybody trying to understand technology and its application to our work, it's really good. To, uh, it's a good primer to get a sense of that just in a professional sense and hopefully it would be insightful to someone out there. Um, you mentioned other reads. Boy, this is a tough one. You mean just like a personal, just like something that gets you going?
1: Yeah, either something that you pick up once in a while just to skim through or something that yeah. you always have on your bookshelf that reminds you of something. Or
0: I'm going to have to go really, really classic and say The Lord of the Rings. I think um, oh, with the advent of the book, setting aside The Rings of Power for a second, I think.
2: Oh, my God. Movies. Have you watched that?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm working my way through it. Yeah. And I'm mm. just... I know. But then I'm like, well, like the elves didn't actually go to Helm's Deep either. So there were some liberties that were taken. in Those the, were
2: my thoughts. In the 2001. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so there's a few things. So it's the creative license. Right. Anyway, I'm cringing for those who are listening. Um, right. So when the movies came out, it kind of created a legion of more casual fans. I had grown up reading the books. I've read them many times. I've just always really taken heart and comfort in, you know, the hero's journey. It's a literal quest that sense of travel and leaving your home and the people that you meet along the way. I think there's a lot of really powerful analogs to maybe someone's experience, not just in our line of work, but certainly it's a good example of that, the people that you meet on your travels and how maybe they help you in your quest. And speaking of destiny benders, we probably all have a role to play in other people's journeys as well. And we can't always see where it ends up. But to participate in that, I think is really rewarding. And from a literary standpoint, that's kind of what I gravitate to and keep coming back to.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we often say that, that how many people's lives do we touch without knowing it on a daily basis? So yeah, that was fantastic. Girish, do you have any? I have one last question. Can I ask you one last question? Quick fire question. Yeah, go for it. Super basic. Favorite food, favorite place to go eat if you're, you know, either out traveling or or at home.
0: Yeah. So I'm a big pizza fan. I have a pizza Instagram review account, but pizza is like such a safe answer. So instead I'm going to say there's a dish it's called chicken barbecue, not to be confused with barbecued chicken, but it's Mm -hmm. chicken barbecue. Uh, Very common at like fundraisers. I grew up going to like fundraisers as a kid that always had this dish, which was like Barbecued chicken with a very specific kind of sauce on it. I don't have the vocabulary to explain it to you in depth, so I hope, you now culinary minds will have to look elsewhere for a more full explanation. But baked beans and like a roll and a chick like chicken barbecue, I'd have to say that would be my requested last meal.
1: If this I is in like like
2: chicken a Kansas barbecue
1: State style.
2: Th- but this is weird okay. how can you have chicken barbecue that's not the same not to be confused with barbecue, barbecue chicken? chicken like i do
0: yeah <laughs> so i'm gonna it? have to now see i've thrown this out there and now i'm gonna need to find the answer because i'm not actually sure how to articulate the difference i think uh, you know a chicken barbecue maybe it's in the unit that it comes you usually get like half the chicken so you got like the leg, uh, and the leg goes up like so whereas barbecue chicken i feel like it could just be any old thing, Whatever, just grab, yeah. or grab and go kind of deal. So I don't know if it's like qualitative, quantitative, but yeah, boy, it's good though. And that just I, I was really
1: expecting you amazing. to say uh Buffalo wings. Well, so we would just call them wings.
0: That is something that, uh, that's like the biggest thing. Someone says Buffalo wings. I'm like, okay, you're not a local, are you? But that's, yeah, that's, that's one of the few kind of claims to fame that we've managed to export. So I'll, you know, that's all well and good. Yeah, there are some great wing places. I would say Elmo's, if you're ever in Buffalo, go to Elmo's. Uh, there's also 9-11 Tavern if you're in the South Towns. Mm-hmm. I would stay away from kind of the big names. You know, people are like, oh, go to Anchor Bar, go to Duff's. See, so yeah, I would I would go like the really local boutique. Like the Dive. Really yeah, absolutely. yeah, just go to yeah. Elmo's. Welcome and uh, thank you later.
1: All right. Well, really quickly, hey. pizza, Instagram account. What is that? <laughs> yeah like
0: what is it in principle or are you looking for the handle like like, uh, the, the handle and why i mean i'm just curious yeah so i call it dank pizza reviews and it's really um so during the pandemic this was like a pandemic survival tool uh we got a poster that was this artistic illustration of all these different pizza slices in buffalo and it was called buffalo by the slice they actually sell posters, uh, they're not compensating me for name dropping them, but they sell posters for all these major cities. Um, you can do like Philly by the slice, Chicago by the slice, really creative. And to pass the time in the pandemic and a house full of kids, we were all trapped inside like everyone else. It's like, you know, let's go around and let's try every single pizza on this
2: yeah.
0: poster because there are some that I knew and there are some that I'm like, who like where is that? So we drove sometimes it was a 45 minute one way trip, you know, going out to get this. And we would film our reactions, almost like a, like Dave Portnoy uh, doing his pizza reviews thing. We were a little bit inspired by that format. and thought, well, let's do kind of a family-friendly version of that, just reviewing local pizzerias. And then from there, people kept asking me, once we completed the poster, they were like, so now what? Like, what's going to happen now? You're going to keep going? When's the next review? I was like, you know, guys, I kind of finished it. It was just for fun. Yeah. But oh, I did okay. kind of spin that off and say, well, when I go and get a pizza somewhere, I'll take pictures of it. We'll talk about mm-hmm. the crust. We'll talk about the flop, the cheese. You know, and just <laughs> It's just for fun, really. Wow. But, well, yeah.
1: <laughs> so dank pizza, pizza reviews on Instagram. Yeah. Everybody go check yeah. it out.
2: I'm going to check yeah. it out.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We appreciate it. This is very insightful and uh, exciting to see all the wonderful things you're doing already
0: and best of luck for everything else awesome thanks garish thanks jessica i really appreciate the work that you're each doing both professionally and i think filling the space with this podcast and just giving people the chance uh to share some really fascinating stories there have been some real powerhouse guests on and i just really honored to play a small part in that in that list and hopefully there's been something of interest for you guys today
2: Oh, absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Destiny Benders. Join us next week when we speak with Gretchen Dobson. She's a global engagement strategist and an international alumni relations consultant based in Australia. Until then, have a great week.